Hi, and welcome to the Horizon Church podcast. Horizon Church is a Christ-centered, word-based and spirit-led church. We are so happy to bring this week's message to you. And on behalf of our pastors, Brad and Ali Bonhomme and the Horizon Church team, we pray it's a blessing to you. Who feels like you've come into the first week of January like you've crash-tackled through? Yeah, it's kind of a little bit fog of war and it's like, Give me what you've got, 22. I've just done 21, you know. I'm feeling that way. And um, I'm just going to spend some time this morning um, taking advantage of what usually is present for us on on a New Year's Day, in in the new year. When you pay attention to what's going on, we could call it another year. We could call the public holiday another year day, but we don't. We call it New Year. And so whenever we are celebrating this holiday, even though really in actual fact it's just like any other day in many respects, there is something that naturally is present to us about new possibilities in life for ourselves. And so I think it's worth reflecting on this morning with the time that we've got together about what it takes to be the source of change in your own life. I know it's a bit cringy, but I joined a gym this year along with a million other people in Sydney, right? And you've got... A, a, a possibility for yourself that you'll want to see fulfilled and manifested and brought into being. And people start making lists, New Year, resolu- New Year resolutions and all those kinds of things. And then if you're being around long enough, you'll notice that there's this kind of gravitational pull against initiating change and really making permanent difference in your life. And, and your friends, and you can either observe that, you know, that gym membership kind of seems to be uh, a lost investment by the time you get to halfway through February, right? And so I really want to spend some time looking at what's in the way of transforming. The Old Testament prophet, the mouthpiece of God, God speaking, says, forget the former things, Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? When your phone dies, when it goes flat, you pick it up, you plug it into the wall for a while, you let it charge, and then you turn it back on. And between the time that you turn that phone on and it's ready to use, it usually takes a minute. You can't just switch your phone on and make a phone call. You notice you're watching a manufacturer's logo or some spinning dial, you know. And and what's happening in that minute or minute and a half is that the device is accessing the onboard memory. And it's reading some pre-programmed instructions. I'm an Apple iPhone, I'm a Samsung, I'm running these programs, I'm this version. And, I, and this is where everything I need. And then, okay, I'm ready to go. What do you need? And you and I 
are a bit like that computational device. Every morning, in the first few minutes that your conscious brain awakes, you're accessing the content that is most familiar to you. And that is memories of your past. And those memories are linked to people, places, experiences. And you're recalling those unconsciously, automatically. And it's not just any random thing that you remember. It's usually things that have the biggest emotional load, the biggest psychological significance to you. Those are the things that the brain is calling on. And all of those memories have an emotion attached to them. Emotions are the end state of a past experience. So while you might not even be conscious of explicitly the memory, the event anymore, you still have your body recalling the emotion. That's familiar to it. And it's usually things like regret, past failure, grief of some lost, something lost in your life, and uh, frustrations, complaints. Some of you will probably even sense that you're entering into an argument in your head, even in the first few minutes of your day. And your body is then starting to charge your physiology with the content of those memories, with, which creates a state of being. And so before you've even rolled out of bed, you are physiologically, your mind-body loop is charged with the contents of your past. And and because your state of being is given by your past, what you're probably almost certainly going to do is what? Recreate your past in your circumstances. Your familiar past will become your predictable future. And it's like this software that's working in the background of your life. And so when the prophet says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, he's coming smack up against what the ordinary human being does automatically. He's asking you to do something extraordinary. And when he says, see, I'm doing a new thing in another version. It says, behold, now it springs up. What he's saying is the newness, the the newness of possibility of transformation of a whole new way of being in your life is already always here. And the past is what's displacing it. The past is enclosing your view of life so that you can't even conceive it. And so what's necessary is for you to forget, set aside, and do not dwell on the programming, which has life show up to you in a certain way. Everything about this service right now you're experiencing online and in the room is coming through the filter of every other church service you've been in, every other white skinny guy who talks with a microphone. It's all filtering what you're experiencing right now. And Jesus knows this about us. And so what you see him do 
is when he's working with individuals, when he's ministering to people, he's acting to disrupt, uproot and negate that persistent propagating perpetual aspect of the past in people's life. There's this story in Luke chapter 5, early in Christ's ministry, really a wonderful season in Christ's ministry. Ministry, lots of signs, wonders, miracles, good stuff going on. Jesus is in a house, it's absolutely stacked with bodies. You cannot get a cat in there. And outside, you've got two men who are desperate to get an audience with Jesus because they have a friend who cannot walk and they believe if they can get him somewhere near Jesus, he's going to get a miracle. And so in their desperation, they climb up on this roof, of the roof of this house, they dig through the thatching and they lower their friend on ropes and a stretcher. Plonk, right there in front of Jesus. What a fun time. And the words that come out of Jesus' mouth surprise me. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And I've often read that passage and thought there's really nothing in this situation which would seem to call for that statement. But that's what Jesus says. And, and sin is a word I think is probably one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. We need a new word because we've loaded it so much with the moral sense of the word and the purity of its definition. It means to miss the mark, to make a mistake. I think past failure is a much better understanding of sin. So when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, what he's doing is disrupting the dysfunction of his relationship with the past so that he can create an opening for a miracle, a transformation and something which is there for him. Jesus says, when he saw their faith, he says, there's something in this for for this man. But what I've got to do is, I've got to deal with the past aspect that's clouding this man's receptivity to the new thing. Behold, I do a new thing. Now it springs up. And, and so this pattern continues in Luke chapter 7. He's in a party. He's feasting with some Pharisees and the disciples and into the room uninvited comes a woman who decides she's going to anoint Jesus with expensive perfume. She's weeping. She's drying his, his feet with her hair. It's all socially inappropriate. It's extremely awkward. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. That's Mary Magdalene. And what we think happens is that she becomes a powerhouse in the early church. When he said, your sins are forgiven, those words had creative, life-giving force, totally disrupting what was holding her in place. And she could stand up inside of a whole new way of being in life. One that was full of love, potential and hope and a spirit of generosity and a being there for others, a deep satisfaction with life that wasn't available to her while she was in the grip of the past. Somebody comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. But first, let me go see my family. Jesus says to him, no one who puts their hand to the plow, so to speak, and looks back 
is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And sometimes we can read that verse and think that Jesus is putting this extremely high standard on what it takes to follow him. You know, he's looking for spiritual elite people. But all he's saying is, as a matter of fact, if you are in the grip of the past, if the past has enclosed your view of life, if you are given by your conclusions, your arguments and your convictions based on your past experience, you cannot see or enter into what's available inside of the kingdom of heaven. It's just a fact. And the Pharisees are freaking out about Jesus. He's a good guy. He teaches good things. He does lots of miracles, but he doesn't fast when he's meant to fast. He doesn't keep any of our purity laws. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. And so Jesus uses an analogy to explain to them why he does what he does. He says, if you take new wine and put it into old wineskins... The wineskin will burst and you'll lose both the wine and the skin. What you need is a new wineskin for the new wine. And what he was saying is your old constructs, your old way of thinking is not going to hold the new possibility of what God is holding out and extending inside of heavenly grace right now for you. And there must be something that's in you that's willing to do violence to those old convictions. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, I have kind of done this church thing for a while. Maybe that's your situation. The praying, the reading the Bible, and yet my past still is something that I have to contend with every day. So there's something really to look at there. Why is the past so sticky? Why is it so, why can't it be so intransigent? It's not always like that. I'm absolutely astounded when I come across Holocaust survivors like Corrie ten Boom and others who in their old age, having endured extreme brutality, abuse, and witnessed horrifying, unimaginable wickedness, still carry a radiance. They are the picture of what it means to be alive. There's still a a joyful kiddishness about them that can take delight in the small things. They are loving. They are hopeful for the future. And there's a complete disconnect between what you know about their life experience. It seems like for them, the past has not accumulated. It's, it's kind of evaporated off them. They don't carry the weight of it. They're not within the grasp of it. So what makes the past so sticky? And what I'm going to offer you today is that what makes the past sticky is that there's something incomplete for you with your past. And when there's something incomplete with you and your past, 
You can't let it be. You've got a relatedness with your past that shouldn't be. It shouldn't have happened. They shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. God shouldn't have. The church shouldn't have. And there's a resistance and an unwillingness to let it be, which has to be incomplete, which means the past remains a constraining, disempowering factor in your life. Something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, still shows up in a conversation with you today. And so the way that God mercifully, graciously works in our life is to arrange the completeness of what's incomplete for us in our past. You, will, you might know the Old Testament character, Joseph, who in Genesis is living in the ancient Near East. He's the youngest of 11 brothers and he's his dad's favorite He's hated by his brothers for that. And that hate turns into murder. They end up, oh, murderous rage, rather. They, they end up selling him into slavery. He is shipped to ancient Egypt where he becomes a slave in the household of a high-ranking Egyptian official. He does well. He's respected in the capacity of um, a slave. He's promoted. And then he's wrongly accused of attempting to take advantage of his master's wife and he is put into prison, a third world prison where he endures years of obscurity and being forgotten. And then in a miraculous turnaround, he's given an audience with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh recognizes his talents and promotes him to prime minister. And Joseph has power, he has wealth, he has family, he has everything a man could want, but what he does not have is, an in, is a complete past. He's incomplete with his past. And so God arranges him to be confronted again with the betrayal, with the shouldn't have. It shouldn't be. That shouldn't have happened. They shouldn't have. And his brothers in another land have experienced a famine. They can't feed their own family. They come to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph, but they're standing before him begging him for food. And so Joseph does what an ordinary person who is incomplete with their past does. He abuses his power to frame them for theft. He keeps some of them hostage in prison for a year. And then he, by the grace of God, has a moment of clarity. And over a meal with them, he breaks down, he weeps. He reveals his true identity. He says, I am Joseph. I am the one that you sold into slavery. And then these words come from his mouth. He says, what you intended for evil, God has turned for good. God has turned for good. And when he says that, those are the words of someone who is complete with their past. They can let it be. There's no more shouldn't have. Should should have. It shouldn't have been that way. And when that completeness is there spontaneously, naturally, without you doing anything, the new possibility for being in life arises. The aliveness is there. 
the freshness is there. Love can truly be there in that relationship. Another way that God will deal with people who are incomplete with their past because he wants to. He doesn't, he doesn't want his children living enclosed in that place. He uses a conversation. Because if you look carefully, all the past is, is a conversation that you, you're having with yourself, about yourself. And often you've got a whole bunch of people who are going to provide you support and an alibi for that conversation. But I speak by the Holy Spirit today when I say that the Holy Spirit says, I do not provide support for what has you suffer and what keeps you bound. And famously, Peter, the preeminent apostle, of the Lord on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. He denies him three times. Jesus is in the courtroom. Peter is in the outside courtyard. Someone notices that he looks like one of Jesus' followers and they say, you're with him, aren't you? He says, no, I'm not. I don't even know the guy. They ask him three times. And the third time he actually swears and calls down an oath on himself and says, I don't know him. He's afraid being associated with his Lord. And he, the Bible says in all four Gospels, he walks out of that courtyard and weeps bitterly as he's confronted with his own weakness, his own inability to live up to his high ideals of himself. And then he decides to go back. He decides to go back to his old profession as a fisherman. He takes some of the other disciples with him. They're out on the boat. They're fishing all night. They don't catch anybody, anything. And in the morning, they see a, a man standing on the beach. The man calls out to them and says, why don't you put the net on the other side of the boat? They do so. They catch an enormous catch of fish. And by this stage, Peter's thinking, this could be the Lord. He jumps into the water. He swims ashore. And there, there's this beautiful exchange between the Lord and Peter. The resurrected Lord. And Jesus engages him in a conversation where he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets an opportunity to say, yes, I do, Lord. Yes, I do, Lord. And in that conversation, he displaces the crushing defeat that was taking him out of the calling, out of his giftedness, out of his possibility. He creates a conversation for something new in his life. You see, immediately after he affirms for the third time that his love for the Lord, Jesus begins to talk about his calling and his destiny. The enormous stature of what he's called to do and be in life. You see, we can't talk to you about what wants to come out of your life, what wants to be expressed but is being frustrated by an incompleteness that you have with your past. There's a giftedness. There's an aliveness. There's a deep satisfaction with life that is waiting for you and held out in Christ. The verse you might even want to say crystallizes the very essence of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is anyone who is in Christ 
is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so you've got to get present to what's possible for you outside of being incomplete with your past. Because most of the time we're getting something out of being incomplete. We like to hold people in a place of obligation with ourselves. Here's something. Sometimes we like to hold ourselves in a place of obligation to us. How weird and crazy is that? And so we hold, withhold our, the, 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 we, we sabotage any possibility of joy and fulfillment in life as some kind of weird punishment on ourselves and others. Which comes from being incomplete and not being in a place where you can let the past be in your life. You know, Jesus puts it this way. He says, make peace with your adversary while you are on the way to court, he says, oh, you will be thrown in jail and you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Jesus is not trying to send us on a big guilt trip condemnation. He's just saying the fact is that you are robbing yourself of life while you are holding people in a place of obligation to you. Life owes you. When you're related to life, that it owes you something. When you're related to life from a place of entitlement, you are being robbed of the freedom and self-expression and life-giving spontaneity and joy that's already always there. See it now, the prophet says. It's rising up. And when you get a sense of what's possible, you, you, you find this eager uprising. I want to be complete. I want to be complete. I'll do whatever it takes to be complete. That's the kind of urgency that Jesus is creating in that little parable. When you're on the way to court, get the deal done. Exit any cost. Do not stay in a place of incompleteness in your past. And you will not, Provide support for the incompleteness that you see in your brothers and sisters as well. There's a time and a place to grieve. There's a time and a place to experience loss. And sometimes there's always an aspect of residual there. But when that becomes a a disempowering, permanent state of being, a way of being in your life that you're now cynical and resigned and can't enter into hope and joy and new possibilities. You can't, you're not, you're withdrawing your love and affection in life. You're withdrawing yourself in life. It's some some kind of strategy for being, avoiding being disappointed, avoiding being dominated by anyone. You don't know who you are. You're not willing to volunteer yourself in life. And so, you know, this morning, I'm really putting, I I know I'm putting it out there. (laughs) I really felt the Holy Spirit give me permission to put it out there. I thought this is not really an easy New Year's message. But it's like I felt the burden of the Holy Spirit say, I want my people to be free 
there's a new possibility that I want to broker in people's lives, something that you cannot even conceive of in your place of incompleteness. And so there's so many ways that you can participate in forging your own completeness with the past. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. He says, put off your old self. Being made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self created to be like God. And what he's saying is it's not a magic thing out there that's kind of waiting to happen for you. No, you're invited by the, by the Holy Spirit to participate in putting off what constrains you. And there's... And so this, you know, Coach Holy Spirit this morning wants to to share what a conversation looks like. We talked about a conversation being a a vehicle for completing your past. And some of you, the Holy Spirit is speaking of people and relationships that are incomplete. Sometimes it's some people. Sometimes there's people who've already passed, but you're not off the hook. You can write a letter. And get complete with that person. Maybe your mom, your dad, somebody. Relationships are often an area of incompleteness in your life. Maybe there's an incompleteness with yourself. But a conversation for completing in the past has three things in it. The first one is, you've got to name the old way of being. Because the reason why it's been able to persist in your life is in the dark, unnoticed. You've got to call out the resignation and the cynicism. You've got to call out that spirit of timidity, which has been a strategy for avoiding being dominated or avoiding disappointment in your life. You've got to call out, Paul says, put aside all bitterness, anger, rage, resentment. That's the way he expresses it. Name it. Call it. The second thing is in a conversation, potentially with somebody, You say, I've been this way. I recognise now that I've been this way in our relationship. And I want to get complete with my past. I'm, I'm, I'm entering into something new that I believe God's calling me to be and I'm no longer going to be held by my past. And this is the way I've been that's held me in my past and I'm not going to be that anymore. Once those things come out of your mouth, you watch the power on that. It's freeing for the people that you're sharing it with. The second thing is to recognise the impact. Because sometimes you, you, you want to skip over what's been holding you. You need to get confronted with the fact that it has cost you in life to be incomplete with your past. And there's been an impact on you and, in, uh, and on others. And you, you recognise that impact. You say that the impact of me being incomplete with my past has been this on my life. And I recognise that the impact on you has been this. And this is the last thing in a completing conversation. To really step inside the new thing, you've got to declare yourself as a new creation. You've got to give words and articulation to what you are committed to inside the possibility of a new creation. 
When you think about the term new creation, it's just an open placeholder, right? It's a blank canvas. It actually contains nothing in particular. And so what you've called to do is say, I'm going to be love in this home. I'm going to be alive in my workplace. I'm not going to withdraw my love and affection for the people around me anymore. I'm going to be the spirit of aliveness, confidence, whatever it is. Maybe it's a new possibility inside your finances. And so just as we have the musicians come back and, um, you know, I just want to, why don't we all stand together? No, I just want to leave you with, you've been left with something today. I really feel like the Holy Spirit is, is, is charging some of you with something. He's holding a, a wide open window that you didn't see was there before. And he's created some discomfort where you may not want to be disturbed or discomforted. And inside of that, there's a call to action. Jesus said, now that you've heard these things, blessed are you if you do them. And it's in the going. You often see in the miracles that Jesus does with people, He's often asking them to participate in action. He says to the lame man, get up and pick up your mat. He says to the lepers, go and present to yourself to the priests. The old woman in the Old Testament is required to go and take oil and pour it into the one jar that she has. There's activity, there's action, there's movement. And behind that action, that calling someone, the messaging, the confession, that's what we, there's a lot of religious words that we've lost sight of the power of, the power of confession. Speaking out where you've been pretending something that's not you and that's been robbing yourself of the world. Outside of that, there's beyond that, there's a freedom, there's a power, there's a new possibility, there's a whole new way of being in life that is available to you and accessible to you. In Jesus' Name, thank you so much. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more info about Horizon Church, please visit our website at hz.church. Have a fantastic day and we hope to see you again soon.